be wrapping up the series on the life of David over the next couple of weeks, and then I'm going to start a series on the book of Romans. Uh, what we're going to do to wrap the David series up is to just look at a few of the psalms that were penned by David, and today we're looking at Psalm 19, which speaks to us about God's self-revelation to His creation. The title of the psalm is Truth in an Age of Uncertainty. Turn to Psalm 19 for the reading of God's Word. The heading of the psalm to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in, the sight, in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. In his book, In and Out of the Garbage Pail, therapist Frederick Paris recalls a personal conversation he had with Albert Einstein. In that conversation, Einstein said, Two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not yet completely sure about the universe. Now, it's an amusing statement, but it's also amusing that this statement came from one of, if not, Amer if not the greatest scientific mind ever produced by America. What is truth? Where can we find a reliable source of truth? We've been culturally conditioned over the last two or three hundred years 
to look for science or look to science for reliable truth claims. We've even gotten to this this horrible and disgusting habit of judging religion by science. Einstein cautions us about doing our truth searches in that way. And rightfully so. How trustworthy are humans to give us truth? Human stupidity is infinite. By way of example, have you ever heard of the Piltdown Man? The Guardian, which is a British newspaper, has an online article titled 10 Scientific Blunders, and it includes the Piltdown Man as number 8 on the list. On December 18, 1912, the Geological Society of London was about to reveal a monumental geological find. In the Piltdown gravel pits, a skull was found with a human cranium and an ape jaw. It was proof of the evolutionary development of humans from apes. It was the missing link in Darwin's theory of evolution. Geological digs in the Piltman gravel pits over the next 40 years began to show that the findings were much younger than the scientists originally thought. This led to an intense re-examination of the Piltman skull back in in the 1950s. It turned out that the skull was a hoax. The human cranium was only about 600 years old, and the ape jaw was an addition. It was a fabrication, not actually part of the skull itself. So how reliable is science? Well, to some degree, as long as it's accurate to what creation is teaching it, it is reliable and helpful and beneficial to us, and, and it aids the, the human race medically in various ways. But we are, are faced in our day, and particularly in this time period that we're living in, we're faced with a lot of data through news media and social media. And it's challenging to discern what's true and what isn't. One day you hear this article that supports this theory of how best to contain the virus. The next day you have a competing article that says the opposite. And what saddens my heart is that Christians begin to engage in these debates. We should allow Christian liberty, Christians to disagree on some of these matters. They're not black and white. They're not all clear on what's the best act and practice. The Bible doesn't reveal some of these things. And in addition, the truth, the the data that we get, we're overwhelmed with. A lot of it unsubstantiated. One doctor says this, another doctor says that. But in addition, there's this political element to it. Things are slanted from the right and from the left. And that's added into the mix. Any of you left confused or simply just, you've just had enough? I know I am. 
But you know what I'm thankful for? Whether I get some of this stuff right, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. We get so caught up and emotionally involved in these things, yet they're so uncertain. My fear is the devil is using them to distract us from what does matter. And David draws our attention back to weightier things. So let us look to Psalm 19. The psalm is divided neatly into two sections that describe how God reveals Himself to us. And, and we're going to look at those. First, the first point I want to make is God revealed in creation. And then second, God revealed in Scripture or special Revelation. God reveals Himself in two ways. Theologians categorize these two types of gods of divine self-revelation as general, revealed to all creation in the created order itself. And then there's special revelation, which is directed particularly to God's people through prophets and apostles recorded for us in Holy Scripture. General revelation and special revelation. Psalm 19 beautifully and poetically pictures this for us. Verses 1 to 6, David speaks and magnifies the glory of God in general revelation through beholding creation itself. And in verses 7 to 11, he begins to talk about the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, and what is revealed to us there in a special way. So let us look at the first six verses. The grandeur and the majesty of creation. David directs us, and and I think some of us need to to be directed in this way. David directs us away from our television sets. Away from the 5.30, 6 o'clock news. Away from the social media posts. Do some of you feel the need to just get away from those things? And what does he direct us to? Creation. Step away from all of this chaos and behold the glory of God as He reveals Himself in the heavens. To me, that's some advice that sounds very refreshing. Get away from the phone. Put it down. Get away from the social media debates. Separate yourself from them. Look to the heavens. Look to the sky above, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And as we look at creation, it puts us back in our place. We are creatures created here to glorify the Creator. To depend upon Him, to trust in Him, to worship, and to adore Him. When we look to the stars on a clear night, we're reminded of how expansive this creation is. We're humbled, and we have this sense of our smallness, our finitude, 
our mortality, our absolute dependency on who the one is who made these things. Humans have always been fascinated with the stars, even to the point of worshiping them. You think of uh, Abraham. Back in the book of Genesis, Abraham is told by the Lord, look to the heavens and number the stars, number the stars if you're able to. And up to this point, we haven't been able to number them. We've tried. In 4 BC, Eastern astro- the Eastern astronomer Shai Shin counted and cataloged and numbered 809 stars, 122 constellations. Pretty impressive, right? Well, the Gaia catalog in 2018, using high-powered telescopes and satellites, cataloged 1.3 billion stars. And the count is still going. So we've been researching the stars for years, thousands of years, and we still cannot do what Abraham was called to do. Count them if you're able, God says. But we're not able. We'll never count them. The grandeur and majesty of creation draws us into the presence of God, lifts our hearts, refreshes us, brings us out of the chaos. But also there is consistency and reliability in creation's witness. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. It's consistent. It's repeatable. Unlike human scientific methods that are changed and fluctuate. And we come to new understandings that uh, challenge earlier convictions and earlier research. God's revelation, day after day, is consistent. It holds forth the same truth that it did when, it was, when God created the heavens and the earth. Day after day, creation teaches us about the Creator. Verse 4, we're told that everyone has access to this knowledge. Their voice goes, the voice of creation goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for his son, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber. It's not hidden. It's not secret. It's not only for a few humans. It's there for everyone to behold. It's reliable. It's dependable. It's never changing truth. And I find that so attractive in a day where truth keeps changing by the minute, by the hour, by the day, by the week, and by the month. Why would you be dogmatic about anything said today if it's not coming from God's Word? How much of your time is spent researching 
and fretting over things that are so uncertain? How much of your time is spent holding to positions that good Christians should be allowed Christian liberty on? How does this shape our lives, what David is saying here? According to Romans 1, and it's interesting how much Romans picks up on the teaching in Psalm 19. A couple of passages in Romans that that directly refer to Psalm 19. But according to Romans 1, creation teaches us that there is a God and that He is great and powerful. There is a God. He is great and powerful. And Paul says that it teaches it so clearly that those who deny that are without excuse. As we look at the expansive nature of creation, the power in creation through tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis, the variation of creation, the sophistication of the created order, the beauty of it, how much greater must be the God who created these things? We can't get our mind around creation. How much greater is this God? It leads us to three things. As we study and meditate and reflect and and research the created order, it teaches us to trust. Not in ourselves, not in human knowledge, but in God. Trust that He rules His creation well. That He is good. So whatever our opinions may be about COVID and our responses to it and all of that stuff, you can be certain of this. God is ruling. God is ruling. And He is doing all things well. And He'll give us the answers if He wants to. He'll withhold them if He wants to. So trust. The second is praise. He is to be acknowledged and worship. It draws us to the footstool of heaven. Maybe we need to do more of this. Just you you just go out and pluck a leaf off of a tree and flip it over and look at the beauty and the, the sophistication of the underside of a leaf. What detail on the underside of a leaf? You know when I'm painting bookshelves at my house, that last shelf that you can't see the underside of? I don't paint it. God's made it actually even more beautiful on the underside of a leaf. It's amazing. But then humility. Three things, trust, praise, and humility are the side effects or the results of studying creation. I am small. I don't have the answers. I am a dependent creature. So David speaks of general revelation observed through the created order itself. And then he moves us on in verse 7 to the revelation of Scripture. Special revelation. He turns his attention from the stars, the sun, the moon, and the stars to the law of God. The precepts 
of God. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And I want you to pay attention uh, as we're moving to the second point, the Lord revealed in Scripture. In verse 1, he speaks of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. That term, that title for God, Elohim, reflects His power. He's the Almighty One. That's what we see in His creation, as Paul says this. We, it reveals that there is a God and that He is powerful. But look at the shift in, word, in, in titles. Verse 7, it's now the Lord who He sp- speaks to, the covenant name for God. Speaking of how we live as a people who are in relationship with Him. How, how is our life to be shaped now that we are the children of God? General, speaking to all men. Special, speaking to the community of believers. In Romans chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, What advantage has the Jew... What's the advantage of being a person, a child of God, uh, a chosen people from all the other nations and tribes of the earth? What advantage is there in being a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, Paul says. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Special revelation directed to those people who are in covenant relationship with God. Now, look at the words that David chooses in describing Scripture. He talks about law, testimony, precepts, commandments. These words all point to what? Law, precepts, commandments. Obedience. They're calling us in relationship with God to submit joyfully and happily to His good rule over us and to program ourselves to do what He commands. Scripture informs human action in relationship with God. What happened with, during the exile when the Jews are being brought by Moses out of Egypt? Why does he give them the law? What's the purpose of the book of Deuteronomy? He's reprogramming them. Here you've been in this Egyptian land and you've been taught by their ways. Now you must learn how to live as God's people. So I give you the law. Verse 11 confirms this. Moreover... By them your servant, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. The Westminster Shorter Catechism echoes this same truth that David is presenting to us in this question. What do the scriptures principally teach? What's the purpose of the Bible? What do the Scriptures principally teach? The answer, according to Scripture, is this. 
The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Now David reveals some of the effects of this study of Scripture. Verse 7 and verse 8, he teaches us that it enlivens the soul of those who are born again, who are recreated in Christ Jesus. It is our meat and drink. It fuels our soul. It gives us life. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. It also enriches the mind with reliable truth. Again, verses 7 and 8, the second, verse, the second part of those verses, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. Bible study, public and private worship is soul nourishing. Much of our time is spent on things that stir up anger, confusion, and division. They're souls zapping. They're soul killing. They don't enliven. They don't enrich the mind. Paul warns us, if you'll turn with me to 2 Timothy 2. I think it's a word that really fits our times with so much disagreement and uh, quarreling among us. Paul warns us to, in verse 23, 2 Timothy 2.23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So if you see something breeding quarrels, maybe it's not helpful. Maybe it's something that needs to be pulled away from. Maybe we need to look at the law of God more, the weightier things of the law. See, the Pharisees had this problem. They would quarrel over all of these minute details of the law. Jesus says, yeah, but you avoid the main things. You got it all confused. And maybe that's why Paul says that, because he was a Pharisee himself. He understands how this can distract us from what's really important. David fans the flame of our desire to study and search out Scripture. I want you to think about Solomon for a minute. We'll we'll get to how David does that. I want you to think about Solomon and Jesus. Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he looks at the world, life in a fallen world. Life under the sun is how he puts it. Life under the curse of God. And he exposes all of the inconsistencies and the frustrations. You know, you may be a great leader and then the person that follows you ruins it all. You may have saved your money and been very responsible and then the stock market crashes and you lose it all. He deals with these types of inconsistencies when you're doing things right and things still don't go your way. So what's the end of it? What does Solomon say at the end? 
The end of the matter. Ecclesiastes 12. The end of the matter. All has been heard. This is what you need to do. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Simple, isn't it? Jesus does the same thing when He's dealing with human worry about our finances, what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink in Matthew chapter 6. What does He say? Basically the same thing Solomon says. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Are you worried about COVID? Are you worried about what's going on in the world? You live in a fallen world, Solomon says. Don't make it your life ambition to sort out all of the world's problems. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Do the will of your God. David fans the flame of our heart motives. What is it that drives us? What grips the attention and the focus of our heart? Is it worldly success? Verse 10, David says, shouldn't be. For more to be desired are the Scriptures, the law, the special revelation. More are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Is it worldly pleasures, eating and drinking and sensual things? David says, no, the Scriptures are sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Seek to know God's will. Dedicate your life to following it. And as you do that, you will be led by the hand of Scripture to Jesus. Look at what David says in verse 12. He brings us from law to gospel. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Wait a second. David longs to know the law of God, to be taught by it, to be instructed by it, but he's very self-aware of his own faults, his inward inconsistencies of his own heart. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And when you do that, when you apply gospel to my life, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. When God blesses us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, when He justifies us in Christ, when He unites us and therefore brings about sanctifying power in Christ, then we stand blameless before this holy God. David speaks of his error because he's longing for Jesus, the Lamb of God slain for the sins of His people. Let creation draw you to this almighty, all-powerful Creator. Let the law inform you of His absolute holiness and purity so that you will see your smallness and your sinfulness and you will run to Christ. Creation reveals the power and the glory of of God. Scripture reveals His holiness and His justice through law, but also His mercy and His love 
through the gospel. And I want to close as we prepare to take this table, the table of gospel grace, with these words from Exodus 34, when Moses, the author of the law, asked God to reveal himself to him. God does that. Exodus 34, 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You who are seeking the kingdom, you who are seeking the righteousness of God, you who in that process of seeking find yourself coming short, when you come to this table, you come to a God hungry to forgive, desiring to pardon your sins and making every way for that redemption and reconciliation to be possible. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we ask that you would meet with your people through your ordinances, the preaching of your word and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That you would stir up our hearts to love you and to serve you to walk in your ways, to manner, to organize our lives in a manner that is well-pleasing in your sight. But Lord, also to know that we are sinners in need of constant grace, and that we have one who covers the multitude of our sins through his precious atoning blood. May we come with great joy to a merciful God. Amen.